Be Fabulous with Vibs and Vicky, the ThinkShift podcast for professionals who aspire to be fabulous leaders, those who not only succeed, but also purposefully seek to reinvent the world. Welcome to the Be Fabulous podcast. Uh, this is our series four special series with, uh, with my fabulous person and guest here, Sean McCall. Um, so last time we... Um, we dug into this this idea of from being a techie to being a business leader. And uh, what we thought we'd do today was uh, go a little bit deeper into that and be a bit more interactive and, and have a bit more fun with it. Uh, last time we kind of set up the academics behind it. You know, why is it so hard, if you will, um, to go from the world of being uh, a technologist to being a business leader. And this time what we thought we'd do is uh, I'm going to poke and prod Sean as someone who's recently been on this journey and see see where it takes him. So, uh, hello, Sean. How are you? I'm doing well. Poking and prodding, that sounds like a, like a good start. But yeah, I'm doing well. I'm fresh off uh, Thanksgiving holiday and uh, happy to be back in the seat um, and happy to be on with you today. So, Sean, Sean is uh, pretty close to an elite athlete. So, I have to ask him, like, you know, when Thanksgiving comes around, what, what happens to your diet and nutrition? Are you like straight up? regimented even through Thanksgiving or, or do you call a timeout? I tend to eat really cleanly, whether it's a holiday or not. Um, I don't know. I just feel better physically. It's not so much a performance related thing as much as it's just, um, it's just a feel thing. I just, I'm just happier and I feel better when I'm still eating pretty cleanly. So yeah, there was, um, there was a lot of, uh, of, of extra stuff, a lot of, uh, crumble and pecan pie and pumpkin pie, lots more ice cream and, and all that's a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, it's funny how I, uh, I don't feel as good physically, uh, especially the next day. So I try I, to, I just guess most of the time stuff. we poison ourselves with bad food. So it's not yeah. that surprising, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, it, it's fun and, and it, it's nice when it, when it happens, but, um, no, and then my, you know, my workout routine stayed pretty stable as um, we had great weather in Houston. So I spent a lot of time outside and taking walks and, and you know, that, that's great. That's pretty awesome. So, so Sean, sort of moving to the topic at hand, you know, I want to, I want to sort of probe and pick on you a little bit from the perspective of, you know, someone who certainly was highly technical and kind of made that shift. Um, I'm kind of curious, like, how, what did you think about your bosses and your managers and your, your clients, like who who were more senior than you, if you like, who were in maybe, maybe, maybe they were VPs or SVPs or, or CIOs or CTOs or CFOs or whatever it may be. Like when you were, when you were that technologist, like how did you, what did you think about what they did and their relevance really to what it was you were working on? Yeah, it's an excellent question. And it's, but I think I was pretty critical of those people that they, they didn't know much and they didn't contribute. Uh, I think, uh, back then, I, I guess I had the viewpoint that, you know, I was a primary constructor of of the tangible things that we were on the hook to deliver, and that and that felt important and it felt valid, and you know that I was very much in the main line of of what we were going to deliver. Um, I, and I think it, I just didn't appreciate the amount of orchestration and the amount of negotiation and these other these other important things that were happening. I think part of it was, I just didn't understand it, but also a lot of it was just happening in ways that wasn't visible to me. So I just didn't have exposure to it. So 
Yeah, you know, looking back on it, um, I I was probably pretty critical of those of those executives, um, and you know, it's I, I guess now that I'm on the other side, there's you know, there, there's times where when, when I'm engaging with the team, I, I feel some or I feel the um, you know the maybe the lack of uh, connection to some of the other things that we're doing around the people systems or around the business value or the process that that augments the technology solution. All right. So, so tell me, give me some examples then. So you said you're on the other side of the fence now. So what, what do you say to these, um, you know, to the younger use, if you like, the people that are in, in similar positions to what you were? I mean, you just mentioned that, you know, thinking about the people systems or process systems or whatever. I mean, I, I mean, the superstar performer journey for a technologist is pretty much about doing cool stuff with tech, presumably. So, and that gets paid really well, right? Like why bother learning all this other stuff that doesn't get paid as well? Yeah, it does. It's fun to on the fun, uh, tools and the new platforms and all that stuff. And uh, it's cool to be a pathfinder and a trailblazer in that way. You know, great software that people don't really use or doesn't make people's lives better is more like shelfware than than useful software. And so, so you know, sometimes it's making the the um, you know, using those tools and, and getting totally into it in a way that, um, that creates that shelfware. And I think that's underwhelming for, for all the best technologists. So, you know, I, probably the most anchoring thing that I found as a technologist and then, and then these days, like I said, being on the other side is just trying to connect it back to how is this going to make people better? And if it's going to, then I think we've all got to rethink it. And if and if it is going to, then to make sure that we stay with our feet firmly planted on on that idea, um, that we're clear on how it's going to make people's lives better. And then you know sometimes there's there's compromises on technical elegance or whatever, because because we're real clear on our focus. Hey, this this is how it's this solution is going to make people's lives better. I don't know about you, but you're, you're bringing you're you're hitting me with like uh, flashbacks because. The one thing I used to hate when I was a technologist, which was very long time ago, was I, I was kind of addicted to the, you use the word uh, elegance. There was like a purity to coming up with a way that was, I just thought everything through and it's going to work brilliantly. If someone wants to change something, then it'd be so easy if we build it this way or architect it this way or whatever. And um, it, it took me a long time to realize that <laughs> a lot of the extra effort and work that was required to implement that way for statistically something that was very unlikely to occur was somehow not worth doing. Yeah, I think that's, <laughs> I, th I think that's the ugly truth of it all. It's, um, I think part of it comes from just the fact that, you know, you go through high school and college, uh, you get a degree, it's a very scholarly way of being. Um, it's very theoretical and and elegant and and then I think the the real world of business solutions is a little bit different and that that upper level of elegance isn't as important now I'm sure there's some workloads there's you know uh, high frequency trading and other things where you know maybe that last uh, bit of performance or elegance makes it but I would I would say that probably uh, the process around a technology change or the, the change management itself or, or truly understanding how it's going to influence the people that are using it. Did I have to ask you, is that something you struggled with when you 
or do you still struggle with? Yeah, it is. Uh, I that that sort of scholarly way is is something that I'm pretty comfortable with, and and in a lot of ways, um, I think I gravitated towards computers and and programming because it was a way to avoid the messiness of the people. <laughs> um, so it kind of came back full circle on me, and uh, I realized that nope, that that wasn't actually a way to avoid it. In in fact, it was quite the opposite. It squared me up on it even more so than I than I think I realized. So. So yeah, it, it's been a little bit of, uh, it's kind of like peeking around the corner. You're like, do I really want to go all the way around the corner or do I just want to, do I just want to peek? And do so I, I pretend think back to go, in my early- Do I pretend to want to go around the corner? But not yeah, really. that's what, that's right. And I think early in my, in my uh, technology days, I, I think I knew I needed to go around the corner, but I only really felt comfortable yeah. peeking around the corner. Yeah. So, you know, it's, you know, if I take your idea a little bit further, you, you know, you mentioned that, you know, the best people want to be- you know, working on products or building technology or software that people are going to use that's impactful and so forth. But then at the same time, we also said that, you know, at least I said that I found it quite hard to let go of the elegance and purity. Um, does that kind of mean the best developers are more pragmatic and less pure? Well, I don't, it, it might, but I don't know that, I don't know that pragmatic and pure are necessarily on the same polarity. You know, I think that there's there's an element of of solutioning that just has to have pragmatism period or <laughs> or you're going to write you know solutions that collect dust whether they're technology or business or process they're they're just not going to make the change that you want so i don't i don't know that pragmatism um uh maybe it is on a polarity and i'm just not thinking of what the other pole is i i do think that purity is on a on a polarity or, or it is on a continuum. And, and there are, there are times where you need a, a, a very pure type solution. And there's, and there's other times where, you know, a Pareto principle of like, Hey, just get it, get, get it at 80% of the way and only take 20% of the time. That's, that's really the, the better play in some scenarios. And, and I think that that's, that's part of what a great solutioner realizes is the difference in those kinds of scenarios. And I think that's something that I didn't really have as a young technologist. Yeah. You know, yeah, I agree with that. I, I, you know, I think back to my career similar as well. And a lot of people I coach and work with as well. How, you know, how do you help people see that? Like, how do you, how do you, I mean, cause you know, a lot of our listeners are going to be, you know, trying to figure out at some level, do they want to make that jump? Are they really happy being technologists and doing whatever it is that they're doing? Maybe they're thinking about getting contracting or set up their own single shingle. And uh, I mean, it is pretty um, attractive, right? I mean, you don't have a boss to worry about. You get to do the work you want to do. You can avoid those, not, those pesky people after you've sold your initial contract. And, um, but, but it is also, um, I don't know, constraining as well. Yeah. I'm kind of curious to your reaction on that. How do you, how do you coach and mentor people through that? I, f I find that to be really difficult, and I think it's because I look back on myself in my early technologist days, and I was probably uh, you know fairly stubborn and resistant, and it took me, I think, making some painful mistakes before I really was willing to pay attention. So I think um, as I'm coaching others, I think probably the main thing that I try to not do is I try to not tell them, you know, what they can expect. And I try to be, instead, I try to build some contingency into it so that as they bump into the 
to the parts that, um, you know, where the learning comes from, that we've got some contingency around that so that the learning comes from their experience, not from something that I've said to them. And I think that's partly just because like this was said to me lots of times when I was in those younger days, it just, um, it just didn't really land with me. And I think, as I said before, I was a little bit dismissive of it, thinking that kind of I was at the center of the what was most important about the solution. And I've just come to learn just through an, you know, an expanded understanding of what it takes to get solutions done in business, that, uh, that there's a lot more to it than that. So I think you just got to make space for people to, to learn through doing and and there's a phrase <laughs> that doing I tend or learn through screwing up. Well, it's I mean, what's the difference? You know, I think uh, there's a phrase that very much stands in the at the top of my top of my head, which is don't waste the pain. You know, like you're going to bump into painful situations along the way, but those those painful situations are telling you something. And so, what's that thing that they're telling you? And and as long as you're open to that, then then it, it really is learn by doing and learn by screwing up is kind of the same thing. Yeah, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of that. I actually think that, um, you know, our brains are very good at retaining and connecting memories to either very pleasurable things or very painful things. And, you know, in the professional sense, you know, screwing up is a wonderful teacher. And, uh, and maybe, maybe we need to figure out how to, um, we, we talk a lot about, um, creating safety and supportive environments. And I think there's a, like with everything, you can almost go too far. If you create too safe and too um, supportive in environments, you might not be creating those moments of suffering that are required for deep learning. I don't mean technology deep learning, I mean, I mean in the lowercase deep uh, learning Yeah, way. absolutely. I mean, there's, there's learning that comes from being brave enough to try. I think there's times where safety overreaches into um, making it, comfortable um and that's that's probably where it, it goes goes too far i know you've had bruce balangi on before and um this is an area that you know i've heard him talk a lot about that um you know that safety and comfortable are not necessarily synonyms in the in the context uh that we're using them it really is all about bravery and i, I thought that was a great way to think about it um to, to kind of help separate it all out and and to make space you know, as a as a facilitator or an enabler, to make some space for the failure because that's where the learning comes from. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know when you when you're, I'm so I'm curious because you're working around lots of technologists most of the time. Are you able to even estimate a percentage of how many people you think choose to take that leap towards leadership, and then the ones who choose not to, if you will? Mm-hmm. Is it one in five, one in ten, one in hundred? I'm really curious. You know, I don't, I, I, let me see if I can find my way to that answer. Cause that's a really good question. Uh, not, not one that I've thought about before. I think that there's, um, there's a couple groups. There's the, there's the willing leaders. So they're the people that I think want to go there and they're trying to figure out how do I, how do I grow to this leader of greater influence? And then there's, I think the reluctant leaders, they're the ones that are in transition, but maybe a little bit reluctantly, as that are that are sort of maybe defiant is the word that's coming to mind. But but maybe there's a better word. Um, maybe it's just resistant, because there's reluctant. Like I'm still going to go, but I'm maybe not thrilled about it. But then there's the resistant. Like hey, I'm not I'm not going to go. I'm staying here. And and honestly, I think that 
those are three groups and they might be like one third, one third and one third. Um, I think it depends on, on the type of uh, profile that you tend to recruit for. Um, certainly for us, we, for Pariveda, we, we recruit a, a pretty stout um, computer science and MIS type background traditionally. And so that puts, um, that puts us into, I think, a, a pretty um, even split of a third, a third, a third. That's okay. All right. So that's just really cool. I, I, you know, I'm a big fan of rules of three. So you, you've said, you said there's a, there's a category of people that maybe are willing, willing techies, let's call it, willing techies to future leadership. Then you've got reluctant, reluctant leaders or, and then you've got resistant leaders, is basically what you said. So, okay. And, and do you think that's, do, do people hop around in your experience or, or, or do, does willing always stay willing and reluctant always stay reluctant and resistant always stay resi resistant? Yeah, the, I, I think there probably is some movement. It's not, they're not massive waves. There's, there's you know, like a couple people that might hop over to an adjacent group. Um, but I think that's a, probably a small subset. I, it, not aimed at birth or something, but that, yeah, I think generally um, people tend to stay in roughly the same group. Um, you know, there's some life experiences that change how you look at it, but, but I think that largely people stay, I think. What do you suppose that does to people's... I think what can also happen, particularly in technology, and particularly when you're... One of the benefits of technology has been that if you're reasonably good, you get paid really, really well relative to the market, shall we say. Um, and when I mean the market, I don't mean the technology market. I mean every other functional area you could be employed in in the professional world. And so does that not create disincentive almost to to get out of technology or, or reduce your your hands-on technical skills because because those other things don't seem as lucrative or potentially lucrative as what you've been doing thus far. Yeah, the well the lucrative I think the lucrative word might be the key word because you over time you know maybe one of the things that happens, you know, in in the, sort of the mid-cycle of people's lives like around the time that they've they've got spouses and cars and and kids in elementary school and junior high school and stuff like that is I think that your value system shifts around that time. And, you know, one, one vector that someone could really optimize for is earnings. Another vector could be for influence. Another vector could be for, um, for self-development or something like that. And I, I think for, I think for me, what I realized is that my influence was limited as a technologist and I, and I wanted to optimize for a greater influence. And I, and I knew that I had, it, it became apparent to me that, because I think I was probably in that middle group of being somewhat of a reluctant leader. I wasn't resistant to it, but I wasn't trying to, you know, uh, ask for a seat at the table of leadership as a, as a willing leader necessarily at the beginning. Yeah. You're so reacting think, to requests rather than like reaching out and grabbing them with both arms. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so I think as a reluctant leader, I, I think eventually what I realized is that um, to reach my career goals of, of driving more influence, I was going to need to change the scope with which I was working. And so it was really that motivation that led me to make the difficult changes that, that I needed to make and, and cross into the, well, to go all the way around the corner to continue the metaphor we talked about earlier, like I needed to just go ahead and fully embrace it and, um, 
and and that that helped me a lot. But I think before you get there, before you get to that realization, it's I think it's hard to hard to know really what to do. You tend to stay where you are. Yeah, you know, taking that that idea of these you know willing, reluctant, resistant again, you know, I would think that, uh, and I'm kind of doing this off the top of my head right now, but I'm curious to see how you react. Um, my guess is those who are willing and make that transition probably actually increase their longevity of income over time. It's a little bit, uh, like a good analogy is like a, like, a, like a professional sportsman or sportswoman. You, you can, if you're, if you're an elite athlete, you're likely to make a lot of money while you're an elite athlete. And then at some point, and it'll probably be younger rather than later, your, your, your athlete career will end or will reduce. And maybe you'll stay in the sport, but your responsibility changes to, you know, whatever it be, coaching or owning a team if you're really successful or whatever. Um, and, I, I, and I think that if you're, if you're in that willing group, you're probably looking at maximizing your income over a longer period of time. Because, because the one thing nice about leadership roles, particularly with a technology um, foundation, is, you know, you can earn quite a lot of money into your 40s and 50s as well, and in your 60s as well. Whereas my guess is that if you were resistant and you, you held your technology skills in the highest regard, by the time you get to 55 or 60, you're probably not picking up the latest framework as quickly as you were when you were 25, 26, or 28. That'd be my guess. Well, it's a, I love the thought track. I, I, think, the, I think the most rare combo are are people that do both. They were a great player and they're a great leader. Well, that would make them fabulous. Yeah. (laughs) I think we're seeing waves of this, you know, like, um, uh, like even in the English Premier League uh, was, uh, my son is a Tottenham Hotspur fan. Oh dear. Watching the game against Chelsea this weekend. And I just have a lot of appreciation for the respect that he was a great player and, um, and, and also a great leader. And it's that combo of, of being both that I think is so rare. We see a lot of, um, a lot of great players and, and and player I think can be used as a technologist as well because you're sort of playing just in that domain when you're when you're when you're working as a software programmer or, or what have you. So I think player is a is a is kind of a, a pretty useful generic word. But you know I think we see some players that that were great at playing but can't necessarily translate that into into ways that other people can play well like they did. And then there's other leaders that understand structure and motivation and value and all this stuff, but they weren't necessarily great players themselves. I think the the wonderful combo and the rare combo is are, are players who are great leaders and, and they understand both sides. So I guess the, the, the shout out to our listeners would be, you know, when you're, if you're thinking about making that transition or you're being nudged or pushed or your company wants you to take on more responsibilities, then it's a good question to ask yourself. Are you really doing this willingly? Is it something you're, you're striving for, you're reaching for, you want to do it? Uh, maybe you're a little bit bored of what you've been doing from a, from a like I'm, I'm scared of looking at my screen for 16 hours a day, deciphering and debugging and whatever it is that you're doing. Am I reluctantly taking additional stuff on because I'm being a good corporate citizen and I kind of see that I should be doing stuff like that, but I don't really enjoy it, don't really like it, don't really know if I'll be any good at it. And, and I'm letting go of something that maybe, I'm letting go of some of my content power and maybe that's a little bit uncomfortable. 
Or if I'm like, hell no, I really don't want to do that. How do I convince my organization that I, they should let me carry on doing whatever it is that I'm doing now and just keep paying me more every year? I think that's, that's, that's pretty much how it nets out in your model. Yeah, I, I, I think so. But w- one of the things we talked about, and it, gosh, it seems like it was 10 years ago, but the, I think the opportunity really where you feel resistant or reluctant is to um, is to ask some curious questions to see to see if there's something that you do value that you would be willing to prioritize and therefore if you do then then it's not a game of like you know the boss says and so you must do it becomes this uh, common vision that you share with the organization or with your team. And you and you are motivated and willing to do so because you've taken the time to identify the thing that you really value. And I think I think in my experience, what I what I realized is that I valued some things that I didn't realize that I valued at the beginning. And so that it was really through that new insight that I that I was motivated to pursue some paths in addition to what I was already doing. And so I think that's the game is to try to find that stuff through a set of curious questions. Yeah, I agree. Curious questions, I think that gets into psychology, gets into a little bit of depth. I, I also like to call those investigative questions because it, it, um, it, can take quite a, it can take quite a lot to say, what do I really want that I'm prepared to endure for so that I would do this willingly rather than reluctantly? And uh, it's this, you, you relate to this, it's got nothing to do with being a techie, but... Um, I actually have another coaching client. He's done some podcasts with us, uh, Will, Will Harrington. And uh, I've been toying with this idea. You relate to this because you're an athlete as well. He's an athlete too. Um, And I've been toying with this idea of doing a marathon. And I really want to do a marathon. Well, Well, let me phrase that. I say I want to do a marathon because I like the idea of how it sits and lands. On the other hand, that's a lot of hard work. <laughs> Running a marathon is hard work if you've, if you've never run one before. And um, it was really interesting because I was coaching him on he's stepping up into a, sort of a senior vice president type of role in his organization. And, and I ended up, he's done ultra marathons and all sorts of marathons and whatever. And he started using exactly the same techniques I was using on him to help him step up. And he said, well, okay, so let's now apply that to, to your marathon running. And... Um, and to be fair, he made me go back and say, you know, okay, uh, the, the question that he really said was, what would make you want to do that above everything else? I, was, I, mean, I, got, I got a lot of things on my plate. So to, to want to do anything above and beyond anything else, that's, that, that took me about two weeks of, um, of uh, sort of self-reflection. And... Uh, yeah, and it, and it boiled down to a no-regret life. I, I, I really hate the idea of going to my grave and knowing that I could have run a marathon and didn't. And that makes it number one for me. But, but yeah, I, I use that because I wanted to share a little bit of a story to make that real. Like anyone who's listening to this, if you're resistant, reluctant, there's so much goodness by willingly engaging leadership because the universe of opportunities that presents itself is so huge, but you can't see them when you're in your little don't, when you're in your little, you just can't see them. They're opaque to you. And, um, uh, you know, if you can, if you can allow yourself just a little bit of self-reflective time, uh, indulgence, if you will, um, you might learn something about what would make that not only worthwhile, but something you would actually endure for. 
Um, and once you get to the place where you'd endure for something, then he actually, it's very hard to fail. <laughs> People don't realize that it's super hard to fail when you know that that's, that's what you really want to do. The willpower levels go up massively. So, um, yeah. So many, so many good words in that story. I love that story. You know, you, you were saying, you know, what you're willing to, or, to endure. Um, I think that's a hard question for a lot of people to answer. It, it certainly was for me at, at various stages in my life, but I found it was easier to answer the question of what might you regret. And so I think that, um, that you know, that type of curious question, I think, uh, can lead you to more of an insight around, well, what do you value? What, what are you willing to do? And, and is that amount of prep or pain or preparation is that is that is that worth it does that get you where you want to go and i I think that you know it's uh it's you know going down the lines of what what might you regret um even though that's a little bit painful sometimes to talk about it's it, it, it often can open the door to an insight that can make a big difference because i think part of what helped me make the change from just a hardcore technologist to a leader, it was, I think I had a fear of not reaching my full potential of, of influence in the world. And so I, I think the honest answer is it was a little bit of a negative based fear of, um, and, 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 and so there was, there was this fear, there was this, there was this possibility of regret that I would leave something on the table. And so even though it was uncomfortable, there was motivation to, to try. And so I, I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, it's some of the, the negative emotions are, um, aren't, aren't maybe the, the place that we like to go, but, uh, but they're real powerful. And a lot of times they open up new things that, that we haven't considered before. Hey, I, I, I got to jump in there. I, I almost never recommend books because I'm not a huge book reader. I tend to be an audiobooks reader. And then the problem with audiobooks is I tend, like, I, I don't have a very good memory for remembering the authors. And therefore, I find it difficult to bring up books and I can't remember the author. It sounds terrible. However, you just said something that was really interesting. I do want to give this book a plug. Um, you, you said, it, you know, it may have been, you almost described it as little, maybe it was a little bit selfish on my part to want to do that. And uh, there's this fantastic book called The Elephant in the Brain, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life. And it's by uh, Kevin Simler and Robin Hansen on Oxford University Press. I can't believe that, but there you go. I can't believe that I remembered it. But it's really, it's really um, talking about this very phenomenon. And it's, and it's really saying that you know, certain, certain motivations that we have are, are kind of acceptable and desirable in society, like trying to do good things, you know, <laughs> saving lost puppies. This is, these are all good things, right? These are positive motivations. Make the world a better place, make, make the environment more sustainable. All these things are very positive motivations. And a basic idea behind this elephant in the brain is that that's okay. And we all have positive motivations, but it doesn't mean that, that we don't have these kind of elephant motivations and what he's really getting out of the negative stuff or the, the things that are, you know, well, I just want that because I want to earn $50,000 more, more in the next quarter or next year or whatever it is. Or, um, no, I really am that vain and I really do want to look that good. And therefore I really do want to do it. But whatever it is, the idea is that, um, there is almost always a, 
it was almost an inverse kind of dark side, if you like, to our motivations to, as opposed to our positive ones. And we can, use, we can use either of them equally. And one is not, it doesn't, one doesn't make us like listening to our negative motivations, if you like, our, or elephant motivations to use their language is not, um, it's not wrong. It's not wrong if it, if it helps you do something that it, you wouldn't have done otherwise that is inherently positive. And um, yeah, so, and I, in fact, you know, you talked about Bruce earlier, you know, when we had him on his podcast, on the podcast, I mean, I was like uh, super impressed that he opened up the way he did because, you know, Bruce is a big brain as you and I both know. And, um, you know, he described how, you know, for someone who's very, very positive about what he's trying to do in the world, it's unbelievable. And then he openly acknowledged that, you know, at the end, I'm just angry. I'm angry that the world is like that. I'm angry it's this way. I don't want it to be that way. And that just makes me angry. And that gives me the fuel and the motivation to keep going. So, yeah, thank you. For, thank you for giving me that entry point. I, was, I wasn't expecting it. And if you haven't read it, seriously, Sean, good book. Yeah, I, I haven't read it, but I, I like the... Uh... I like the idea. I'd like to pick it up. I think in a company like yours as well, really relevant because I, it's almost like culturally unacceptable to talk about anything that might be perceived as slightly selfish. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, it certainly can be. Um, you know, the fact is that uh, it's the oxygen mask. You know, we got to get the oxygen mask on ourselves before we put it on on other people. Otherwise we, we, we can't make the decisions that we need to make. We, we've got to have oxygen to our brains as well. And I, I think that, you know, you can ask parents and leaders all over, you know, okay, the oxygen masks drop out of the above compartment. Who do you put it on first? And it just seems like, you know, nine out of 10 are going to say, I put it on the kids or I put it on the team or I put it on the others. Because I think we're, there's this like, um, um, altruism and servant leadership and, and these pieces that sort of dominate the, the way we think. And, and I think it comes from a good place, but the fact is that we, we've got to take care of ourselves as a leader. We've got to get the oxygen mask on ourselves and we've got to do that because uh, we hold the roles of making the decisions of reading the situation and, and guiding the team through the crisis and if we're putting the mask on everybody else and we're last, I just think that w there's a chance that we're missing the oxygen that's needed to make the right choice and, and to help lead the team through. Uh, and so there, you know, I think a big part of this is just um, like making peace with that. I'm going to put my oxygen mask on first and then I'm going to, I'm going to be the right leader for this group through this situation. That's awesome. Yeah. That, that's, yeah. I couldn't agree with you more and it's often neglected. And um, it's often why we see so much burnout, um, particularly with um, what I call self-insecure or, or people who lack self-security and they're in leadership positions often for the first time. And they, they haven't really found that equilibrium for themselves. And so it's very easy to try to be living up to someone else's expectations and you're not really sure you know what you're doing, even though it seems like everything's clear, but it's not really clear. Yeah. Um, that can be that can be quite a, quite confusing and and uh, awkward place to be in. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you said you said a, a key word for me, selfish. Um, I think there's you know when I look at the 
oxygen mask. It doesn't seem selfish to me to put it on first. Um, it does seem uh, self-sustaining and it seems uh, self-supporting. Um, and so, you know, maybe part of this is just that, like, we need to expand our vocabulary around that concept of, like, what's selfish? Like, what is, what's good for for me that leads to goodness for everybody else? Or what's good for me that leads to only goodness for me? And, and you know, I think just building some language around that um, can help us understand where we land as a leader and how it impacts the people around us. I want to I pull us back to technology land for a second. How do you think the technology leadership landscape is going to be changing over the next two, three, four, five years? Well, it's changed a lot in the last two or three, four, five years with a lot of technology disruptions. Uh, we're seeing a different type of leader with some of the Silicon Valley disruptions and, and stuff like that. So I think the, I think more of the disruption wave is probably coming. Um, you know, as we've seen Zoom and Uber and and other other big plays um, really disrupt. You know, Airbnb really disrupt uh, sort of brick and mortar and, and old school um, technology. Like I think you could you could you could think of technology as just bits and bytes, and then I think you could look at technology as you know like. Hey, a building in downtown with office space and with hotels is technology because it creates it creates a um, an environment such that people can do what they want to do. Similarly to how how technology changes that, so I think it you know the technology shifts and the innovation cycles are faster, and um, the folks asking curious questions are going to be the ones that that find the new pathways to value. So I think the the, the speed is picking up and uh, and because of that I think the new leaders that emerge are going to be ones that can make quick decisive action and have a clear vision and are willing to say no to the stuff that doesn't align to that vision when I think about what you just said particularly earlier on in one's career as a technologist things are pretty binary right they work or they don't work they you get the expected results or you don't get the expected results the damn thing compiles or it doesn't compile the you know it, it, it's pretty pretty binary now yeah, I, I, i'm curious to your reaction on this I, I think people get used to that like there's a there's a comfortness to use that word or a safety if you like that comes with the definitiveness of knowing that's right that's wrong that worked that didn't work and they, so so problem solving starts looking like yes, no, works, doesn't work, very binary. I think that, that when, you, when you're in the world you're in now, you know, you've sort of transitioned to that kind of leadership world. I mean, there is no, there is no yes, no, right, wrong. It's, it's, all, it's, it's more measured in terms of, of um, the proportionality of, of how, how much good was that answer? How much bad was that answer? How much indifferent was that answer? And therefore, in this situation, was that appropriate? It's almost like it's almost like quantum states rather than binary states. Um, I'm really curious because I think that's one of the hardest shifts. Like when working with techies, I think that's one of the hardest things because they get used to the idea of things being binary clear. And I mean, humans just are never going to be binary clear. They're, they're complex creatures. And um, I, 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 I want to know if my way of approaching that has really been 
have them look at the problem domain as something infinitely more complicated, which is worth solving because why would you not want to solve a more complicated Rubik's Cube if that's what turns you on? Um, which for most techies, they love problem solving and puzzle solving. But I'm curious as to if you've used any other techniques to help people with that, really that transition to comfort with ambiguity. Yeah, it is comfort with ambiguity. And, it, and it's also moving up into complex problem spaces as well. You know, the, managing that complexity becomes a series of, of chunking things down into smaller problems and solving those smaller problems. You still need to be able to glue them all together and, um, and integrate them into something larger. But, but yeah, there's, you know, for, for complex problems that there aren't right solutions. And I think that that shift is something that is really uncomfortable for for someone who's used to finding right answers. The, the, the problem is that right answers really only exist for small or simple problems. Um, and, and I think that as you get through, it's not, that, it's not that you exhaust the set of simple problems, but I think that over time you realize that there's bigger problems you could try to solve. It's just that those problems aren't solvable in the same way that small or simple problems are. And that's a, that's a maturity. That's, that's an, that's a shift in mindset and a shift in, in approach. And a lot of times um, it's not taught, you know, it's just, you kind of get in there and you clumsily, you know, stub your toe and break things and bang, bang around in the dark. Uh, and then you start figuring out that there's a different approach that's needed. Uh, doesn't have to be that way. I think, you know, that's, that's part of what's fun to talk about and and to try to teach is just that uh, there's there's different ways to manage the complexity. Mm. Okay, so we're we're coming to the end of this episode, Sean. So I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you what questions you've talked about curious questions and asking the right questions. What questions would you ask? You've got three. Okay, what questions would you ask to help someone determine if or encourage or influence someone to being that willingness camp rather than that resist, resistant or reluctant camp? Or even if, it, even if it just helps them figure out which one they're really in? That is a very good question. Uh, I, you know, I think the most, I think the, the thing that, that comes to the top for me is, is trying to understand what you believe in. So I think the question is, what matters the most to you at the end of the day? And if it's hard, if it's hard to get to that, then, then where I like to go is talk about the, talk about your favorite projects and, and then what made them great. And, and then to use that as a pathway to try to figure out what you value and what gives you energy. I think there's a, there's a question, a line of questioning along that vector of, to try to uncover what do you value because that's different for everybody and that's part of what makes the world a beautiful place is that is that everybody's different in that way and there's 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 different ways that people create value and a different place for for everybody to be i think that's probably the number one the number one question i think from there the probably the follow up question is what what do you need to be successful because I think then that once you establish what you value and and what you're willing to to work hard for, then then you start sizing up the delta between what do you have and what do you need, whether that's like internal capabilities 
in confidence or or external resources and uh, and stuff like that. So just like be, it's kind of a moment of being honest with yourself, and then what are those gaps, and then how how can you close the gaps, whether it's through learning or through acquisition of resources or coaching or 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 whatever it is. Whereas then I think you know whether you've got um, a path that's reachable and sustainable or or something that's just a dream. And then you know I I don't I don't know. I wish I had something real clever for a third question. I think for me, I tend to, I tend to adapt as a leader. And so maybe in some ways, my third question is like this placeholder of, I don't know what goes here, but, but try to find it by really listening and being present with who you're with and, and let the conversation drive that third question, because there's, there's likely something else that's in there that that hasn't been un, uncovered maybe it's like what what what's what's in your way or 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 something like that but um i feel like i'm floundering around a little bit but i think i think i do tend to leave a little bit of open space so that i can try to adapt and um and respond to what the person's telling me in that moment yeah, that's awesome. My 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 third one, I I use one and two quite a bit as well. In those three those streams, my third one tends to be what brings you joy, um, and that tends to open up a completely different line of thinking because people people often compartmentalize. Very few people look at their particularly earlier on in their careers tend to look at things in a holistic way. Like you know, this is just me as a a journey person going through the journey of life. They tend to look at it as you know me at work and me at home and me with my family and me, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, yeah, so I tend to go with, with what brings you joy. To, I like it. To maybe as a, as a suggestion for your number three. Um, I, you know, I, I, I gotta say, okay, so we can't really close on that. I want to end on something more positive. So in your words, is it worth it? I mean, you as someone who's made that transition. Do you wish you were still back there, like architecting technology solutions or, or, or where are you now? Like, was it worth it for you? And how would you, how would you articulate the, the promised land, if you like, or the upside to someone that you were coaching or working with? It is, it has, it has been worth it. It is worth it. Um, and I, I think that, I think what makes it worth it for me is that um, when I, when I think about the value that I'm creating, I see the people that I'm influencing and that, and that makes it tangible for me. I don't, I don't think very much about the technology solution. I don't think about the awesome routine that I built and how that integrated into this, this context. It, it really has been about, about the people. And I think the, the thing that's happening for me now is that some of the folks that I've had the pleasure of working with, they're now teaching a generation behind them in the same way. And seeing them embrace that same type of learning mindset and growth mindset, you know, willingness to try and and stuff like that, has really been a joy because see them, you know, it in a lot of ways just like paying it forward and um, and and it was a way for me to honor the people that invested in me by investing in someone else, and then it's really fun for me to see people I've invested in to choose to invest in others in a, in a similar and, and even better way. And like that creates this force multiplier that really energizes me. So that is why it's easy for me to say, yeah, it was worth it. And I, and I hope to do more of it. 
I have nothing to say to that other than thank you. And until next time, everyone, be fabulous. <laughs>